Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to Lessons in Savvy Living. I am your host, Sia Knight, and thank you so much for joining me once again. Uh, don't forget that this podcast is about real women, real stories, real lessons, and I have a doozy for you today. I have a woman who has quite a story, and I tried to kind of put it in a box. I said, well, McKenna, when you want to tell the story, maybe it's about this, or maybe it's about that, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to invite you on. Tell me the story, and then you can um, it, give us all of the lessons that have <laughs> you've learned from the story. But the first question I would ask you, my guest is McKenna Hydrick. Is Hi. hi is what are three things that people should know about you? Well, the first thing is now that the Enneagram is a really popular topic for you to really get to know me off the bat. I'm an Enneagram four wing three. So I'm an extreme creative. Um, I feel extremely unique. I'm very emotional, but I'm a wing three. So that means I'm also a go-getter. I set goals. I go after things which is usually a great thing and my Achilles heel because I have all these ideas and all these things I want to do in the world. And um, it's hard to accomplish everything that comes to my brain. So that's kind of how I was made and how, you know, my personality has developed. Um, so that's number one. Okay. Um, number two is that I find hope in all things. And I think that a lot of people, can say, well, that's a really fluffy thing to say. But when I say that, it's because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. He has become my living hope. And if the Bible tells me that Jesus is my hope, is is also an equal sign. So Jesus equals my hope. He's my living hope. And you can't separate things that equal. So I can't separate Jesus from hope if they're equal. So for me, it's not that every day is great. As the story progresses, you'll see that my life has actually been extremely difficult, but I can find hope in all things and I can find good throughout my day if Jesus is my living hope and he sustains me throughout my days, whether it's a good day, like I have way more good days now than I did about five years ago. Five years ago, every day, I didn't know how I was going to make it through. And I didn't know at the end of the day, which of my children would be alive. Mm. So I had to allow God to be in my life and become my living hope. He's the only thing that I could rely on. He was the only solid rock that I had because everything else beneath me was sinking sand. And so I have learned through the fire that Jesus is my sustaining, living, everyday hope. So now it's like muscle memory for me that when I encounter something really difficult or we have a global crisis and we don't know how we're going to get food at the grocery store or, you know, have anxiety about my husband going to work seven days a week, I can remember it's a muscle memory that I have that Jesus sustains me through all things. So that's number two, I can find hope in all things. And then the third thing is that I'm a work in progress. My life has been nothing that I expected, but better than I could have imagined. And that's the only way I can explain it. And I don't have myself together. I don't have all the answers. I am a work in progress. And like I said before, as this story unfolds, we'll see 
just the trauma that I have been through. And as a result in 2018, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD mm. as a result of medical trauma with my children and, uh, and the nature of what chronic illness does to someone and a caretaker. And so for me, the last two years have been undoing and unlearning everything that was causing me to stay caught up in my trauma and kind of wound up in a ball of yarn. And as my trauma therapist helps me understand it, she takes my ball of yarn that I have and she undoes it one strand at a time. Uh -huh. This is not something that is like this. You know, when I was first diagnosed, I literally took a summer off of work and said, oh, I'll get this done in a summer. I'll get these therapies done. I'll be fine. I'll bounce back. We're going to get back on this train. And actually what happened was it's 2020 and I'm still unwinding the yarn. So I'm a work in progress. I might say some inspiring things today or have a unique perspective to offer on life. But every day is a learning opportunity for me to become more self-aware of who I am, but more importantly, who God has made me and who he has called me to be. Wow, that is phenomenal, especially when you talk about hope. Because as we sit here, McKenna, in um and we're recording this, we're in the middle of the COVID crisis. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are looking for some glimpse of hope, something to hold on to. And I would say that that was one reason I wanted to relaunch my podcast at this time, because I yes. wanted, you talked about being a work in progress, Lord knows I am as well. And I wanted to have women on, people like us, that can have stories that maybe someone can get some type of inspiration from. Um, and so let's get into it, McKenna, because you mentioned <laughs> a couple of things and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to sit back because I want to hear this story again. Uh, the, the overall topic I would say is that, um, really it's kind of medical trauma um, based on lots of different things and events that happened in your life and in the lives of your children. So how did we get here, McKenna? Talk to me. Tell me your story. This is a really interesting story and it's, it's really long. So I'm going to try to make sure that I really just hit the, the important points. And number one is I'm married to my high school sweetheart. We first started dating. We were 14 years old, but we were like all 14 year olds and it didn't last longer than a week. But we seriously started dating again when we were 17. We got married. We lived a very simple life. I was a school teacher. My husband was still in school and working real estate on the side. We lived in this little tiny house in our hometown with a green tin roof and we paid $450 for it for each month. And looking wow. back now, I don't, I don't think I realized how special that was. And those were it some was. of the most special <laughs> times in our lives, but we got pregnant really early on in our marriage. And we had our first child when we were 23. And in today's society, I would say that's young and none of our friends had kids yet. And I didn't really babysit younger kids. I was kind of the babysitter that babysat the 11 and 12 year olds and kind of drove them around to the pool. Mm -hmm. So I really didn't know a lot about kids. I was, you know, learning as I went. Um, but my experience having my first child was not like most first time moms. And the day that he was born, my first son, his name is McCall, like the bird McCall. Mm -hmm. And when he was born at 30 hours old, he was transferred to another hospital because 
he was having trouble digesting food. He was throwing up bile and his mm. meconium tar poop stuff didn't mm -hmm. come out. Excuse the word, but no, no, it didn't I'm... come out. I almost said the other one, but you know, that's, I'm trying to keep it PG here. But <laughs> um, So he just, his digestion just wasn't working properly. And um, he was just really, really sick. And they didn't really know what was going on with him. They told us he needed surgery. We decided to wait a day and kind of pray on it and figure out because the surgery was going to remove 70% of his colon. Oh my. And we decided to just wait one more day. And after that one day, they came back and said, whatever he had yesterday, he doesn't have anymore. He doesn't need, need the surgery. So we don't know if it was misdiagnosis or God intervened, but so we, they sent us home with this child after, you know, being in the NICU for over a week and he just was still sick every single day. He mm. threw up 10 times a day. And when he was six months old, we were like most parents, new parents starting baby food. And I guess that day he had had, I can't be sure of it, but probably something like green beans. And we had our little lunch and everything. And then we set him down for his nap and being new parents and being tired, my husband and I decided to take a nap too. And we woke up a couple hours later and realized that we still didn't hear him on the monitor. And this was back before video monitors. And when you could like feel your baby breathing, I mean, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm 36 and this was 13 years ago. So it was, you know, things were different then, but so we ran in to go see him because we didn't hear him and we found him completely unresponsive in oh, his wow. crib and he was um like broken out in a rash from head to toe and was starting to turn gray and was laying in a pile of his own throw up oh god he was six months old oh, and you would think in that moment that you would call 911 and you would wait for the ambulance but we didn't even like the gut response was to get him and just drive 200 miles an hour to the hospital and they ended up um bringing him in he was turned gray by that point and they kind of revived him and got him back his vitals stable and all they could offer us was that hey he probably had some virus and his fever was so high it just caused all this and we were really confused there was no talk about food or anything else and it, this is not in any way blaming the medical community because nobody knew what was wrong right but we had been for you know at our pediatrician every time saying he's throwing up 10 times a day we know oh. this isn't normal and so as things progressed um when he was probably about three and a half this is what i call hell week this was the worst week of my life and where the root of most of my PTSD comes from. Um, on a Wednesday afternoon, this was, you know, roughly three years after that first incident. And he was, my son was still having trouble with food every single day. He was scratching his head. He was throwing up. We just could not get any help. Um, and so I remember he was sitting in his high chair and he just kind of started going, <clears throat> and coughing and I was like what's going on and he grabbed his throat oh my. and I realized that he was choking oh gosh and um I pull him out of the high chair and by this time he actually stopped breathing completely and he had turned horizontally on my stomach and was flipping like 360 trying to gasp for air I could hear him gasping oh wow. the hard thing is I was actually nine months pregnant at the time with our second son oh my so gosh I I called 911 and they tried to walk me through the Heimlich, but being nine months pregnant. Oh 
Oh my and gosh. And I wasn't sure if he was choking or if his throat closed. Like I didn't know what was going on. And so through the help of dispatch, I was able to use the Hobbit maneuver, a version of it, to get whatever was in his throat unstuck. And he kind of came to. And we worked through that. This was on a Wednesday night. It put me into labor because of the intense trauma that I went through with it. And to this day, I still don't know what it was. But as the journey would unfold, we would get more information about what we think it probably was. That was on a Wednesday. On Friday night, um, I couldn't sleep because I had been in labor and I was just really tired. I was nine months pregnant and I was sitting on the couch watching Gilmore Girls, just trying to catch up. It was like midnight. Everybody, my other, my son McCall was asleep. My husband was asleep. I got hot because I was pregnant, turned on the fan. I was sitting there with my blanket and I started going, hmm, it smells like fire. What, why does it smell like fire? It smells like smoke. What is that? I get up and I investigate and I found our laundry room on fire. What? Yes. I quickly wake up my husband and smoke has filled the entire house by this point. Our laundry room is in flames. And um, he says, you go get McCall out of bed and y'all just go stand in the street. You know, I'll call 911 and get this fire out. And I kid you not, we go out into the road to get away from our fire. And in that moment at midnight, just a random friend of ours drives by our street. And is able to go in and help my husband put out the fire. Oh my gosh. And um, our house was spared, but we couldn't live in it because of my child's asthma and, you know, food issues and obviously being nine months pregnant. So we moved into a hotel and that was on Friday. And on that following Tuesday, four days later, I had my second son. And then um, he also had digestion problems and wasn't doing well. Oh my gosh. And we went through not the same thing. He never threw up, mm-hmm. but um, was eventually diagnosed with, with failure to thrive. He could not hold his food. Um, his food came out the other end. Mm-hmm. And I had one son who was throwing up every single day. I had one child that had 30 diarrhea diapers a day. And when he started eating food, Anything he ate came out whole. So his body wasn't digesting food. By this time, my firstborn son was still having issues with food. So we ended up through a process getting him tested for food allergies. And when his test came back, the doctor called me and said, I can't give you these results over the phone. I need you to come in. So I came in and she said, I, he's anaphylactically allergic to 150 foods. Wait a and minute. Like, hold on, hold on. What does that even mean? 150 foods? Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. Sorry. I just wanted to make sure I heard that correctly. Oh my goodness. Go you ahead. I heard it correctly. Now, now that I'm in this food allergy community, I know that there's a lot to be said about the, the, and I don't know what the right word is, but just the IgE responses the test can, can maybe be not 100% accurate because he was just so inflamed and so allergic that the test right. was responding to everything. But at that time, I didn't know. And I remember asking the question, well, what do I feed him? Mm-hmm. That's what and I'm she, thinking. And she literally told me, well, just don't feed him those foods. And I was like, wait, where's my support? Where's my resources? Mm-hmm. What is actually, what is he going to eat? And I was so overwhelmed. 
by this point, my other son was almost a year and I was pregnant again with my third child and about to give birth again. Oh <laughs> okay. my Lord have mercy. Yes. And I do know what causes that, <laughs> but, I, but my, my husband was not willing to give that up. So. <laughs> um, but it was an excruciating time. I remember coming home for dinner and I literally fed him Skittles for dinner because I didn't know what else to do. And I had no support. And by this point, my, my second son was failure to thrive. He looked, he looked emaciated. He had black circles under his eyes. His stomach was swollen and distended and he slept 15 hours a day. He was lethargic. And I just remember taking him to the doctor and saying, I need help. Like this isn't normal for a child to have 30 diarrhea diapers a day. Nothing is working with him. He's small. And I remember them saying, well, remember you're feeding him organic foods. You know, you're really clean. By this time I had cleaned up our family's diet. I kind of learned about food and said, okay, Uh we're going to eat from our farmer's market. We're going to eat locally in season. We were eating fruits and vegetables. And, um, and I remember thinking, well, what I know about organic foods would make him thrive better. This wouldn't right. cause him to be emaciated. That doesn't make any sense. Uh-huh. And so through a process, actually, um, we've been praying for our kids in our small group for years. And one week, one of the girls in our small group came to us and said, you know, this work I'm doing at the hospital, she did research at the local children's hospital. She said, I came across this rare disease called eosinophilic esophagitis. It took, me, it took me three months to learn how to say it. So I know it's, it, we call it EOE for short. So from okay. here on out, I'm just going to call it EOE. Okay. I got it. Okay. <laughs> it's a white blood cell disease in the esophagus. And basically what's happening with this disease is like you and me, when we have an infection, let's say in our arm, white blood cells will rush to that infection to fight off the infection so that we can stay safe and healthy. Right. We do not have white blood cells in our digestive tract. But what's happening to these kids that have these white blood cell disease, inflammatory diseases in their digestion tract is that they're swallowing food and they're swallowing air and their body thinks it's foreign. So it attacks the esophagus like it's a disease, like it's, you know, an infection, excuse me. And it causes a a, a buildup of those white blood cells, which then causes inflammation, which causes pain, throw up, diarrhea, all of the symptoms we were seeing in both of our children was just result of this disease. But it took until my oldest son was four and a half years old to be diagnosed. So at that point I had a four and a half year old with a new disease. My middle son was four months later diagnosed with the same disease, even though they had separate opposite symptoms. And then he was diagnosed with his own set of food allergies that were opposite from my first. So my first child, all of his food allergies were related to lots of vegan foods like soy, nuts, legumes, chickpeas, Uh which kind of is what explained for us what happened when he was six months old and we were trying baby food. We think that he probably had green beans. It's a legume and he had an anaphylactic Mm. reaction. That's what actually happened to him. Wow. My middle son was diagnosed with food allergies to dairy and meat. (laughs) And so I had one son who was basically eating meat and dairy and bread and one son who could only eat vegan food. 
Wow. <laughs> and then I had a newborn baby who was having his own digestive digestive problems. Obviously, I have digestion problems in my life, which mm-hmm. is a whole other story. But um, and I had a husband who was working swing shift at the time, which mm. if you're not familiar with that, it is where a shift where they work nights and then they turn around and work days, and then they turn around and work nights, and they turn around and they work days. Um, and so we had three children under the age of four, a husband on swing shift work. We couldn't go anywhere to eat, so I couldn't take them to Chick-fil-A. We couldn't even walk into Chick-fil-A because it caused my oldest son to scratch and throw up. Oh my gosh. So I couldn't go anywhere. And I was stuck at the home with, at the house with my kids. My husband was trying to sleep. We didn't have like a bonus room or anything. We had a small house and our house was on the market because we had this big old dream of moving to Nashville, Tennessee. (laughs) And so at any moment I could get a call from our realtor that said, Hey, can you have a house showing in two hours? And I I would have to, I know, but you can't turn it down. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So I would wake my husband up and he would have slept for like two hours. We'd have to, you know, clean the house really quick, go somewhere, hope for the house only to get turned down. And I think when you think about getting a diagnosis, a lot of people think, okay, well now we can identify what it is. And that was our initial thought is we identify what the culprit was. Now we can figure this out. We can work through it and our lives are going to get back to normal soon. Mm -hmm. But what we've learned about new diseases, chronic illnesses, um, is that isn't really how it worked for us. Um, our life got harder. So after the diagnosis, um, until about two years ago, between all three of our children, we endured 42 surgical procedures. Oh my gosh. And so we became hospital parents and we lived in and out of the hospital, which we had to travel for because our specialist was three hours away in Greenville, South Carolina. Huh. And we were financially broke. We were emotionally unstable. Mm-hmm. Um, we were completely broken. Our marriage was held together by the love of our children. And every single day, we had no idea at the end of the day which one of our kids would be alive and which could possibly be in an emergency situation or a near death experience. It was extremely, extremely painful. And life was so, so hard. But the message that I want to share with people is that those prayers that you pray in your desperation eventually take root and fruit will come from those prayers. Don't ever think that your situation is too far gone, too complicated to pray about because the beauty right now of Facebook memories for me (laughs) is reading those prayers from four years ago and reading those prayers from six years ago because My life right now is a walking testimony that life will get better and that the season will change and that your season of drought will eventually become a season of harvest. It will eventually. God does not forget you. He's not up there going, well, let's just see how many more years she can handle this. No, 
And I, one message that I would love for your people to hear, because there were so many well-meaning people in our lives that were speaking goodness into us and speaking encouragement into us, but we have to be careful and we have to let God sift that encouragement for us because what would happen is people would say things to me like, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And the issue with that is number one, it isn't biblical. Uh. And number two, I did have more on me physically, emotionally, uh. spiritually, financially than I could handle. So when someone said that to me, I would think, well, then what is God doing? Like, right. So this isn't fair. This, he, he has given me more than I can handle. So either God's a liar or you're a liar. Like what's happening? It really caused me to struggle with my relationship with God. And so right. God broke through that and said, I didn't say that. What I said is that life is hard and I have come to take that burden off of you. You give me your burden. I will walk alongside of it with you in a yoke and I will carry the weight of it. And I will give you rest. Uh My God sent me a savior who died on a cross so that he could bear the things that I couldn't so that I could die to myself and live in him. Uh And that is the message that was missing. When you're going through chronic illness, when you're a caretaker, Uh when you are living in a a situation that is beyond your control. Maybe you're in a domestic violence situation or you have a child who is autistic or something that you feel like there is not a light at the end of the tunnel and you don't know how to make it through. God is not asking us to have anxiety about our future. And he's not calling us to have nostalgia about our past. He is calling us and asking us to live in the present moment. Uh And that means in every single moment to say, God, I don't know how to do this. I need you right now. Every second of my day, you know, people would also say, just take it one day at a time. And that is so important. But what I, the message I want to share is take it one moment at a time. One moment at a time. Absolutely. Moment. If you think about the life I was living, when I woke up in the morning to put my feet on the floor, one day was enough to put me in full depression. Right. The amount of things I had to do when we went to doctor's appointments, they were seven hours long because our kids were so medically complicated. My husband would come off of a night shift job, drive to the hospital, meet us there. We would be there for seven hours and he would drive straight back to work for his 14 hour shift. And that's how we lived our lives for years and years and years. So for me, it was God in this moment, what do I need from you? Right. And it could be like, God, my child is dying. I need you right now to save his life or give me the tools and the responses to do what I can physically do to save him. Some nights it would be, I'd open up my pantry and go, what are we going to eat tonight? Lord, give me creativity. Give me Uh the gift of creativity to look at my pantry. Because what was going on for us in that time was, as I shared about my children having different food allergies on top of this esophageal disease. So they're separate, but related. So I was having to cook different meals. Uh So one child, um, 
and the, the long story short there is what they do, the medical community for this disease is they basically pull most of their food out that they're allergic to and they supplement with a medical formula. When we pulled all of my children's food out, um, my oldest son was only left with two foods. So he was left with chicken and rice and formula. Wow. And then over time, my middle son, actually all food was taken away from him and all he ate for his nourishment was drinking formula. And at this time he was three and a half years old. So he had spent three and a half years of his life eating food. So he was a toddler and moving into preschool years, and we had to take all food away from him. So we went through a year where we had no cookies for Santa. We had, uh, we sat around our Thanksgiving and we all ate a bowl of ice because that's what my son could eat was ice. He drank his formula and just to get a crunch, you know, to, to satiate his, his taste buds, he would eat ice. So we sat around for Thanksgiving and ate ice and he had a birthday where we just didn't even celebrate because we didn't know how we went trick-or-treating and came home and had to take the candy away. Oh no. Um, every single birthday party we were invited to, we sat there with no food. Every single family gathering we went to that had food at it. We sat there with no food and, um, the mental struggle that that put us through. Um, because I think, we know we talk a lot about let's sit around the table as a family. And cause I talk a lot about this right now in, in what I do, but there's families out there that can't sit around the table and eat because there's no food to be eaten. Right. So how do I help my child emotionally and physically through this time? And then I have another child who can eat some foods. And then as time passed, my third child ended up not having the disease and we worked through all of his digestive issues and he can literally eat anything he wants. Uh, so how do you love and, and help this one child grow in a normal world, eating whatever he wants while your other son can eat nothing? Uh, how does that, how do you do that? How do you teach gratefulness and gratitude? How do you teach that God is enough, that God sustains us? How do you teach God, if God takes care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and he clothes them and gives them the food that they need, how do you teach that to your kid that God's taking care of you? And so we had to learn to be grateful for nothing. And I know that sounds really weird. We had to be grateful for nothing. And in our nothingness, God was still present and God was still enough. So that when we added one food, the first food that he got back was blueberries. And it's a moment for us that he ate so many blueberries. He literally turned to blue, like his hands were blue, his mouth was blue. (laughs) And we started calling him little boy blue. (laughs) And so for us, blueberries became hope. And what we decided to do was we found a local blueberry farmer. And he's based out of Waynesboro, Georgia, Mr. Bond. He's still to this day, one of our (laughs) heroes. And we just built a relationship with him and we just made blueberries our life. And we would go pick the blueberries and just try to make life about relationship. And that's the one thing I learned. Well, there's so many things I learned, but you know, when your kid comes home with an A and you want to take him to get ice cream, what if that action was stripped from your family and you couldn't give any kind of food reward. 
for mm-hmm. anything. And c- food could also not be comfort for anything. Right. So we had to learn that our reward was relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And our comfort was relationship. And we had to learn how to be a family, to navigate all of these different foods, to, you know, when I was cooking dinner, if I mixed up the spoons for two of my children, Ooh. they could both die. Oh my gosh. So every single day, and that's from a food, an anaphylactic food allergy perspective, right. but the pressure that was on me every single day was too much, mm-hmm. too much. But that's where that idea comes in that I need God every moment and I don't need to fear or try to plan too much for the future. It was just today, Lord, give me my daily formula. We didn't have bread. So Mm -hmm. Lord, give me my daily formula or God, give me my daily blueberry. Give me my daily bowl of ice and let that sustain me today. Mm -hmm. Let your love sustain me. And I'll tell you what we learned as a family was resiliency. And I talked about this in the beginning of the podcast about the muscle memory. Now, when we go through something difficult, you know, I have a muscle memory that helps me get through Mm -hmm. it. And it's the verse, and I can't remember the exact verse off the top of my head right now, but it talks about when you go through trials and it builds character and endurance. And it, it just, it helps you build who you're supposed to be and who God has called us to be. God did not cause this disease in my family, but he's using it for us to help the world. I'm not trying to change the world. I'm just trying to share my story of how God was present with me in every moment and help those people in my circle learn how to weather their storms with a little bit of grit and a whole lot of grace because <laughs> that's what it wow. takes. <laughs> wow. That I, I didn't, I tell you guys that this was an amazing story and I was transfixed because those of us who are mothers and we know what it's like when one child just doesn't want to eat what another child's eating. And, and so we kind of take that for granted, but we hear your story and McKenna, oh my gosh, the, the pressure that you were under and, and the stress um, we talk about now being a time of COVID um, and the type, the, the stress and the um, kind of the, the frustration that people are, are feeling. Um, that was your life for years. And yes. And I think that you, you shared, you said that the lesson was resilience. Mm-hmm. So that's wonderful to, that you were able to come out from the other side, on the other side, and share your story and help other people get, as, bring it back to the beginning, hope. Mm-hmm. Because someone's listening to the story and saying, oh my gosh, I have it, you know, I have a bad circumstance. I have a a, a difficult way, but I heard that lady. (laughs) Well, you know, and I also want to share, this goes back to my point three about I'm a work in progress. I don't want someone to listen to this story and hear me and go, Oh, she's just fine. They got through it. There were intense emotional and physical ramifications from everything that we had been through. Um, 
I, like I said, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. I had incredible, I would say level 10 pain in my neck and my shoulder that I was actually at the time a professional singer. It's why we ended up moving to Nashville. Um, and in part of that is I talked about my house being on the market and it actually ended up being on the market for five years. Oh, wow. And within that seven year period that it was on the market, my husband also was applying for jobs in Nashville and was rejected 500 times before he got his first interview. So when I say like, there's layers to it, there's so many layers to it, but I had so much emotional trauma and I found out that my physical trauma in my body, Uh me literally, my body was breaking down. And I mentioned all that about Nashville to say that the pain in my neck and my shoulder actually caused me to have to stop singing. I couldn't sing at all anymore. And so my children, and this is really interesting point is all of this happened for me in 2018 when both of my children were in remission for the first time at the same time. And so a lot of people would say, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. And, and this is so great. You know, this is what you've been praying for. And it was, mm-hmm. but what happened was when my children were safe, my body and my mind gave out. Mm-hmm. And exactly. so it took me two years. I'm still right now in therapies, working through mm-hmm. what, what happened. I'm learning about triggers and what I can handle and what I can't handle. I'm learning about self-care. And I think a lot of people believe that self-care is a surface level thing that you can just once a month go out with the girls and have a glass of wine or you take a bubble bath on Sunday nights. But self-care to really weather the storm, whatever storm you're going through, whether you're a medical caretaker or you're just weathering something that's chronic every day, self-care is an everyday thing. Mm. And it, it has more to do with understanding you and who you are than it is about the external things that you can do to calm you like a glass of wine or a bubble bath. Mm-hmm. And this is I actually did a whole podcast on this with a psychotherapist named Kim Honeycutt. And she talks about you can't care for yourself if you don't even know who yourself is. Mm, that's and right. So developing self has a lot to do with understanding boundaries, creating boundaries, understanding who you are, unlearning things that you need to unlearn, doing the inner work, however that you do that through therapies or whatever you do, spiritual counselors and advisors to help you strip away all of the things that are preventing you from really seeing the world in the way that it needs to be seen and really working through your situation. So for me, self-care is way deeper than that. And it's an everyday pattern of it's like a frequency thing it's it's not a quality thing necessarily it can be but it's an everyday practice of setting boundaries and limits for yourself taking a five minute breather even if it's just outside um it's a daily practice and so i just want people to hear that it there wasn't a magic button that i was able to push Mm -hmm. that god can do anything but also god needs us to show up to our That's own right. journey. That's I right. heard Anne, Anne Graham Lotz say, she's Billy Graham's daughter. And she said one time, Jesus is a gentleman and he wants to be invited in. Mm, so okay. yes, God can do everything and God can do anything. Nothing is impossible with God, but he also wants to be invited into our space and we have to invite him in so that he can help us do the work. 
And so it was a combination of me working alongside my Jesus to get emotionally stable, to get emotionally healthy, because I was really going down a path of just not being able to handle my life. And, uh, but on the outside, everything looked great. I was singing everywhere in Nashville, you know, releasing albums and doing all these things. And it looked like everything was great, but behind the scenes, I was crumbling. And so that's in 2018. I just, I stopped everything. I started the therapies. I decided to work completely on myself, on my marriage, on mental health, spiritual health, physical health, everything. And, um, and really just stop my pursuit of, of country music and really lean into what God had for me next. Wow. This has been an amazing story, McKenna. I really appreciate you sharing it with us. And so here's the question I have for you. So if somebody wanted to contact you, um, kind of what is your work now in the space? Are you in the allergy community? Um, I heard you mention the podcast. So kind of if somebody said, oh my goodness, this woman has quite a story. I need more (laughs) of her. How would they find you? Well, I've transitioned my work from being a full-time country music artist and really just wanting to help women persevere the storm and weather the storm with grit and grace. So my background is um, I was an English teacher before all of this. So um, I've just put that degree and that passion for writing into play. And now I'm a writer and a podcaster and a speaker and people can find me with my name, just McKenna Hydrick on Instagram. There's no dots or underscores. It's just my name, McKenna Hydrick. They can find me on Facebook. My official Facebook page is McKenna Hydrick. My website is easy to find. It's McKennaHydrick.com. And all of my writing, um, my encouragement, my resources, everything is there. And I just base everything that I do on these four pillars of emotional health, physical health, spiritual health and relational health. And it's just my belief that when all of those things are balanced and healthy and aligned, we can then go out and be the person that God has called us to be, to do his work that only he's designed us to do. And my podcast is called Just Keep Living. And it's a podcast that I talk to people basically like this, where we share their stories of struggle and how they've overcome Right now, currently, I've pivoted a little bit, and we're sharing resources to help people through COVID-19 and the global crisis, but you can find all that information on my website or just on your podcast app on your phone. It's called Just Keep Living by McKenna Hydrick. Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself and sharing your story and your lessons, McKenna, and um I look forward to listening to your podcast because really uh, at this point, what else can we do? We need to just keep living, right? That's right. Like you said, live in the moment, right? That's right. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on, See, I really appreciate it. No problem. All right, everyone. That's it for this episode of Lessons in Savvy Living. Until next time, stay savvy. Bye.